0: Good morning, Mike. Good morning. <laughs> this morning, uh, we're going to spend some time talking through uh, The Great Divide. That's It's, it's a, a topic you've been talking through this series on your blog, and it's it's definitely intriguing. I was hoping we can get maybe some more context here, a little bit of the background of how how you stumbled into this this thought. I mean, obviously, it starts with Lewis, and I know you'll, you'll talk a little bit about that, um, But but why... How did these dots connect for you? And then we'll sure. go from there.
1: <clears throat> yes. Well, uh, when I joined uh, what used to be called Campus Crusade for Christ, crew, we had uh, we were part of seven of us drove out to California. So we had to cross over the continental divide. Uh, but there was no sign marking it. We just used did and you didn't even know you'd crossed over. The Continental Divide in America is the line that divides which way the uh, water flows. It runs from the from Alaska to the Andes, and it uh, it demarcates. So water on the west side flows out to the Pacific Ocean, and water on the east side flows, obviously, to the Atlantic Ocean. And that's why it's called the Continental Divide. Now, there are a few places you can go, and, the, and, and you see signs saying you're now standing on the Continental Divide. But uh, most people don't even know when they cross the Continental Divide. And so this series is that uh, most of us, most of my friends, most of us here, we live on this side of a divide that Lewis talked about, and we don't even know we crossed a divide. And so the implications for this are vast. And uh, I stumbled upon this in um, C.S. Lewis's 1954 lecture. It was his opening lecture at Cambridge. So if you know anything about Lewis, you know that as you gained popularity in Oxford, Oxford only has uh, one professor per department. And I think there was some, even though he had a lot of friends, there was also some professional Jealousy, because he was a professor who was becoming wildly popular for, of all things, children's stories, and uh, so it was pretty clear he wasn't going to become a professor. But Cambridge offered him a position, so he remained. He lived at the Kilns, still lived in Oxford, commuted and taught at Cambridge. And his opening lecture was in 1954, and in that lecture he introduced himself to his students as a dinosaur. And he said you really ought to pay attention because there's not many of us left. Any idea why he would call himself a dinosaur?
0: Uh I would I would guess maybe the fact that dinosaurs are extinct and they they I mean it was very obviously there's a clear divide there uh the fact that he was just old. He <laughs> <And laughs> wasn't that old, come on. <laughs> but, I mean it's his thought process. Let me was, do the math older, here. He was right?
1: 55 and, years old. He wasn't that old. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he felt old <laughs> actually it's because he lived in in a cosmology you'd call it that had disappeared by cosmology he meant an entire way of seeing the universe and even and but all the way down to rocks and trees and human nature and everything and he felt that this view had been discarded by the Western world. And so he was one of the last dinosaurs who remembered when this world, the way of understanding and seeing the world, when it prevailed throughout the East, West, Asia, everywhere. But the modern Western world, first Europe, and then America had discarded this. But most, most listeners wouldn't even know what he was talking about. What do you mean we discarded? Um, so he was a dinosaur. There's three things, actually, in that lecture that are worth noting. First was, he says he's a dinosaur. And that's because he, he represents, he embodies, he's representative of a, of a world and a way of understanding the entirety of the world that had been discarded by the Enlightenment in the modern Western world of which we live. Whether we know it or not, it's gonna to come to this divide again that even churches have discarded without even knowing it. So dinosaur, before going any further, just sort it's not because he was old. <laughs> uh, necessarily, <clears throat> like to think he was wise. <laughs> Gosh, I'm really sensitive now that I, you know, I'm know, i older than 55, so <laughs> I take exception to that. <laughs> uh, so, the second thing is that he, so, real quickly, first, the dinosaur, second, in the radio adaptation, it's the first time he publicly uses the word post Christian. And he says, We're living in a post Christian world, post after. So, after this view of the entirety of the world, which was held by the church for 18 centuries, that's now pretty much disappeared. Doesn't mean churches have disappeared. It means this way of understanding most fundamentally how we behave, why we behave, what makes up a human being, what, de- what uh, differentiates a human being, He even talked about gender, sexuality, all of this. We're past that time. Then the third is that he does say, he introduces this great divide. So when did this start to go away and what was the result? So the result for what we're going to talk about this morning, the result is what he called the great divide. And he even puts a date on it. He says, just about the time of Jane Austen's book, Persuasion, being published, 1816. And when I saw that date, I went, holy smokes.
0: What is persuasion about? I'm sure
1: you did too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I connected all the dots right away. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, Jane Austen's Persuasion, three words, I don't know. (laughs) I've never read it. <laughs> I have no idea why he cites that book, but I think I know why he cites that date. Hmm. Why is that? Now, well, to know that date, you'd have to be familiar with what's probably the best book on the Enlightenment in America. And the book is called, titled... The Enlightenment in America. Isn't that helpful? <laughs> <laughs> it's by Henry F. May, the American historian. It was a uh, winner of, in the uh, Association of American Historians, considered to be one of the best books. Now, why is that important? Well, first of all, Lewis wrote extensively on the Enlightenment. He was very familiar with the Enlightenment, as was uh, Dallas Willard who I think would probably also call himself a dinosaur. Because he's old? Well, he's dead. (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah, he did live a long time. (laughs) I know, technically he's not dead either. Remember, he's the one who cleverly said he'll probably be dead for a while before he realizes he's in heaven. Yeah. If you believe in me, Jesus said, you'll never die. And... uh, If listeners are scratching their head on that, visit old cemeteries. I know this is a detour, but we live not too far from a cemetery that dates from the 1600s. And you'll notice the prevalence of the phrase, he passed away. She passed away. Why did they use that phrase? I can tell you most
0: probably don't know including myself
1: (laughs) (laughs) you've heard it before of course yeah i mean it's commonly used yes because um this before the great divide when what we'd say was an understanding rooted in the old and new testament of how reality works giving meaning to everything it was what was most meaningful to a great many people was were the words of jesus truly truly you believe in me you'll never die you'll never die you'll pass away and it's most it's actually called by other writers sleep so the fun thing about that is to ask yourself pat tell me the moment you fell asleep last night mm. yeah i don't know that's Lewis's, that was uh, willard's point <clears throat> you won't know you will pass away if you know christ the hope of the resurrection, he'll simply pass away. And uh, you will be talking. I've literally imagined it will be this way because in eternity is one big now. We we're going to spend a lot of time on this, but we'll talk about it for a moment. Eternity is one big now. So when Kathy's mother passed away, Mimi, it's not that she died... 10 years ago and she's been waiting at the train station ever since for the rest of us to arrive but she passed into the great now so when I last spoke to her I said to her whispered in her ear we'll be with you and that means the moment you pass and you open your eyes we'll all be here we'll all be together to pass away so you're literally for a lot of people they'll be in a conversation with someone and they will begin to look around and go wait a minute we're in eternity (laughs) best little book on this by the way is how we die by sherwin newland n-u-l-a-n-d memory serves me correctly, he was uh, I think perhaps chief of uh, surgery or something at at Yale. Um, He was a conventional Jew, but his chapter is called Murder and Serenity. So it's a book about the various ways people die, cancer and this and that. But if you want to read a chapter that I believe will impact you, it's Murder and Serenity. It's a story of a little girl at a Fair who wanders away from her mother for just a moment. And then the mother hears the screams on the crowd, and there's a crazed assailant stabbing the girl over and over. It's a horrific scene. And uh, Newman talks about the biologically the way that he said that last that last moments of being cradled by that mother, that little girl felt serenity, that the body dumps so much, all these chemicals it dumps into your body. And fascinating that Newland, at that time anyway, wrote the book, a non-practicing Jew said, almost the paraphrase paraphrases, and I wish that this would all point me to a God who would create us that even we wouldn't even taste death that's yeah, fascinating
0: hmm.
1: so that's that was life on the other side of the divide so here we go let's get back to the great divide circle back circle back so lewis marks 1816 and here's why so when you read the enlightenment in america henry may said the enlightenment actually came in four different versions to America, um, and it's not important, the first three, in fact, the second and third had very little impact, but the fourth one, he said, was the one that shaped America, It became the American Enlightenment, and he calls it the didactic enlightenment, and he puts the years 1800 to 1815. And Lewis said the result is 1816, a divide forms. Now let's go back. What does didactic mean? I know, it sounds like we're back in school. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Fortunately, I I have some sense of what that means based on conversations, but
1: uh, learning, teaching, excessive word usage. Yeah, instruction, teaching, Yeah. yeah. So the didactic enlightenment, the best book on it is by Brinson, and it was the idea, he said, this enlightenment assumed there was sufficient teaching and information that lives and cultures could be changed. So it's called the didactic enlightenment. Here's the thrust of May's book. The American Enlightenment is radically different than the European enlightenment, which predates it by some 300 years. The result, he said, one of the results is the American version of evangelical faith is radically different than the European version of evangelicalism.
0: In this case, Mike, I think it's worth pausing for a second and noting what what we're going into is the, the ramifications of that great divide. What you're explaining is what happened when that divide occurred and, and maybe even That's how right. it occurred. Uh, we're That's not right. necessarily diving into what's on the other side of that divide. And so I think uh, I found it helpful reading uh, Lewis's The Discarded Image. Um, I think even, I don't know if you agree with this, but Charles Taylor's, uh, the secular age, even mm-hmm. hits a lot of overlapping pieces, yep. but just it's, it's, uh, it's an understanding of the world and how the world works and how the world fits into a greater universe that has shifted. And I, and I think it's okay. We're not diving too deep into that because it would, it would almost be trying to explain the tales of a foreign land and, uh, it just, it wouldn't do it as much justice so we we may get there but if listeners are confused and going why aren't they just saying it's it's uh it's nuanced it's subtle uh on the surface and it it gets much different the divide gets much greater the deeper you go but it it requires it it does it requires a decent bit of reading and and understanding and and uh even just some thought to grasp because it's such a different way of thinking about it
1: yeah that you know that's a good way to to put it, uh, you know another way to put it is when the European settlers first came across America, when they came to they knew there had to be a peak, there had to be a, they came to the Rockies, they knew we crest these and then there will be the Pacific. And I would say often say they made two profound discoveries. First of all, when they got to the Continental Divide, they found out there were far more mountain ranges to the west than there were to the east. Second, There were far more people than they ever imagined have been living there for a long, long time. So what we're trying to do here in this podcast is, for American Christianity, if you go to Lewis's Divide and crest it, you go to the top, you'll find out there is a lot more church history on the other side of the divide than they ever imagined. And there have been millions and billions of Christians on the other side of this divide who have flourished for a long, long time. And the average American Christian, their understanding of church history flows just like the water flows on this side of the divide, only one direction. Their understanding of church history and the church itself and the gospel only flows from 1816 this way.
0: Yeah, I think that's helpful. So we're back, uh, 1816, Enlightenment in America, four different waves. Number four, yes. I believe, is where you were.
1: And we don't have to worry about the other three enlightenments. The didactic is the instruction. So it was the assumption that if you're taught to think right, you'll act right. It's under the basic assumption that you are fully conscious of all your thinking, Pat. So if we can arrange your thinking in what became called a world view, that uh, you will behave properly. Now, right now, for example, uh, so there's a couple things that are wrong with that. First of all, 1816 is important because... Why would Henry May say the, this didactic enlightenment only had a 15-year shelf life? Why, why just 15 years? Why, why mark it out as 1800 to 1815? What came after that that undermined the didactic enlightenment? Any guesses? Mm. Civil War? No, that was an outcome, but mm. that, didn't, that actually did undermine, you're right, but even predating that. I don't know. Well, you start to have uh, what eventually will be called called transcendentalists, but you actually have people begin to write. Freud, Darwin, others uh, amongst many said, it seems like ideas and thoughts and behaviors Mm. come from our unconscious. Mm. Yeah, there's your difference. See, didactic is Pat Brown is fully conscious of his thoughts. So if we can arrange those thoughts, he'll have a worldview and his body will follow. So if he gets his beliefs right, his behaviors will follow. On the other side of the divide, if you take Augustine, for example, he would say, no, you got to get your loves right because they drive your desires and your desires drive your behaviors. They govern them. So you can think right, but if you don't love right, if you want to even go pretty wild on this tell me what part of the quote christian worldview lucifer doesn't understand what tidbit of information is he not familiar with uh love no he's familiar with love i'm not saying he adheres to it but he's familiar with it yeah have proved, it's just it's an example of you can think all the right things listen one of the famous megachurch pastors you know last year fell 20 years ago his sermon on sex and sexuality was fabulous hmm. turns out there are a lot of allegations out there of how he behaved traveling the world It's the. It's the. I mean, think, forget him. Think of my own life. How many things do I claim to know that I don't do? Sure. Yeah. That's the problem with the didactic. But the didactic rode this a wave that uh, that uh, Henry May said it was three things. It was first of all it was populism. That is. If you get an aggregate of impassioned people, you'll change the world, populism. So you really want to go after fervency or what became later known as passion. Uh, Second was, uh, and most importantly, was anti-intellectualism. Now that's important because it was basically a throwing off of old, musty, dusty uh, European traditions. Popularly known today as we're not gonna read anything written by dead white European males. And so what? Well, out of that then, May writes that the revivalists who came out to form this new form of evangelicalism were not known for their education, they were known for their fervency. And that's why you see a big difference between European evangelicalism, which began with Luther, heavyweights Calvin, and so on and so forth. And the American is shaped first and probably most profoundly by Finney. And Finney was, I hate to say it was, an intellectual lightweight. But that really appealed to Americans' disdain for, quote, intellectuals and elites, that uh, God really preferences, the the common person. And so that's why these these revivals exploded across the north and south, but mostly outside of cities, mostly in what were called the hinterlands. And that's why to this day you can drive through Kentucky and Tennessee, you you get off the east coast and you see Methodism, because Methodism was the largest evangelical denomination in the mid-1800s. The only problem with that, again, is that it's based on the didactic enlightenment without knowing it. Again, they cross the divide without knowing it. But the didactic enlightenment is already being undermined in our major universities amongst those who are scholarly, who give more thought to actually how we behave through empirical studies eventually, and then eventually even up to neuroscience. But by 1900, The didactic enlightenment has been entirely undermined, and no serious person takes it seriously. But evangelicalism is built almost entirely on it. But because we sort of disdain what, quote, secular universities teach and secular, quote, secular humanists teach, we had that whole movement of disdaining that, we... We were measuring primarily one thing, which May points out, conversions. The important thing was conversion, to which, if you just take raw numbers, the American version of evangelicalism really did well for quite a while. Probably had its peak in the 1859 to 1860-61 businessman's revival, it was in major cities throughout the United States. Prayer revival amongst business people. You're familiar with that, right?
0: Only somewhat.
1: Yeah, see, that's the point. Most people aren't. Yeah. And that's because the Civil War wipes it out. And that's when you have... See, most people don't pay attention to this, but the second inaugural yeah. address, Lincoln, who is not a believer, doesn't appear to be, makes this point that a whole groundswell of people who are serious about the American experiment and self-governance are feeling the same thing, and it's this. Both sides read the same Bible. Both sides prayed to the same God, and yet the war came. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, May points out, and it's exactly right, that that American evangelicalism was known for being uh, fervent, fiercely religious is what he calls it. And so it wasn't being uh, thoughtful, reflective, pondering, practicing spiritual disciplines. It was passion, passion, passion. And that caught on like wildfire. But as you well know, what scripture says is If you're excessively righteous, you ruin yourself, Ecclesiastes 7.16. And the ruin that May traces through his book was that northern abolitionists were fervent in their denunciation in seeking the abolition of slavery, but said next to nothing about racism, And in fact, their churches were as segregated as evangelical churches in the South, which were just as fervent in their support of slavery. And so the didactic enlightenment is our ruination, in my opinion, because you have evangelicals, because it's all about passion, and passion lacks peripheral vision. Because it's so narrowly focused, you have northern abolitionists are strident against slavery, but say nothing about racism, next to nothing. And you have in the South, Southern evangelicals who are fervent in their support of slavery. And that's why you end up with a civil war. And Lincoln shrewdly noting, both sides pray to the same God. Both read the same Bible. Now you notice he doesn't blame very critical phrase. And yet the war came. He puts it in the passive tense, because he could have said, and they caused the war. But he knew there had to be a healing coming. And so, and the war came. Yes, it also came, but out of fact also came tens of thousands of emerging leaders whose parents had come to faith through this American version of evangelicalism that they cast off, and we could go through a whole litany a galaxy of uh, the John Deweys who would shape American education, and Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. who would shape the U.S. Supreme Court, but all of them came out of they f- they came out of this new sense of the didactic enlightenment is not right. And this faith which is built upon it is not right. And it all came out of, it was a result rather, of the great divide of 1816. And again, I go back to, I'm not faulting a listener who says, "Yeah, I go to a church, I've never heard any of this stuff. Hey, if you live on this side of the divide, where all the water, all the flow of history flows from 1816 to 2020. I don't I don't blame you. That's all you're gonna know. In fact, I think one of the ironies is when I hear the you know, church say, Yeah, we're part of Acts 29. I go, Acts 29? Acts one through twenty-eight covers roughly 17 years. So what you're implying there is, yeah, the 18th year of the church, what they were doing in Acts, we're doing that. (laughs) And I think Lewis would say, uh, I beg the tear forth here. But I don't blame you, because unless you ever crest the divide, as it is in Colorado, where it actually was marked, you are now at the continental divide. First thing that strikes you is, well, where's the Pacific? I think if, if my friends crested the divide, I think they would look back in history and go, where's Axe? Well, that was 18 centuries ago. Hmm,
0: yeah, that's, that's interesting. Especially when when we think about comparing other older traditions of the faith with, uh, particularly the church in Acts two and and some some frustrations there, we just got to get back to what the church looked like then. Your your point yeah. on Acts twenty nine uh, that's that's yeah,
1: eye opening. Listen, um, <clears throat> if you want to read a fun book on this, uh, written many years ago by David Brooks called "On Paradise." Drive. It's a, su- a sequel to his book is Bo- in Paradise, which also is kind of a hoot to read. Um, but on Paradise Drive, he just points out that Americans are always forward-looking. We're forward-looking. That's one of our characteristics. We're uh, pretty much historically ignorant. And uh, again, I don't fault anyone. But this this great divide is more significant than the average american evangelical can even begin to imagine
0: so i mean not to be too american and forward looking but <laughs> what, what is what are the implications of this uh, let's first of all what do you hope what do you hope for the the, the church in america do you, do you want believers to get to that crest and see the other side? Do you, do you want mm-hmm. us to live in the other side? Like where mm-hmm. where, where, do you hope yes. to go?
1: <laughs> All the above. Well, the great, the great uh, organizing verb in um, Judaism, of which is true in the church, is always return. Mm. And uh, return. That's because, again, here's one of the things that came out of the great divide. Quick example is progressivism. What's progressivism? Progressivism is a linear view of history that history only goes forward, doesn't go backward. Now, if you buy that, then the idea of, yeah, I'd like people to go to the divide and look back, you go, what? What? Yeah. Yeah. It's about as backward as you can get. Now, instead, if history is cyclical, and as the Jews believed it was, and as the church I could recite for you 18 centuries of Christians saying God is a sphere and we are always circling back to what we ought to be. We are always returning. We are always prone and want to drift and to desert and actually be unfaithful and we are always repenting and returning. Once you have this cyclical view, you go, yeah, maybe that'd be the right thing to do. Especially if this is a blip. This is a 200-year aberration is actually how uh, Robert Wilkins describes it. That's a rather strong word. But he would just say, this is an aberration. This is not the norm. So the only way, yeah, I would say uh, you got to hike back up to, got to take the trek. You got to cross the divide. You got to, you got to, Go, holy smokes! I've never seen this before. Well, so you can't fault someone for not for behaving in a way according to something they've never seen before. Um, uh, I, I'm fine with that, but uh, you, yes, I think you have to return it. It's not it's not that difficult. In fact, it's actually happening amongst. Um, a reporter with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, um, Colleen uh, Campbell, wrote about this many years ago. The first surge of uh, young people who are returning to orthodoxy, and uh, they've just they've just crossed the divide. They've uh, but uh, you know, Rodrere is very popular right now with uh, the Benedictine option. So, yeah, I like the title because he's essentially saying. Hey, I don't care if you end up with Benedict or Benedictine option or Babylonian option, like Babylonian exile. Point is you got cross you gotta cross back over the divide. But, uh, you gotta return to, at the very least, a European version of evangelicalism for this reason. Here's why. And this again comes out of Henry May's book. May said. Quote, that the American version of evangelicalism enjoyed popular success and even some humanitarian help, but these were purchased at the surrender of meaning.
0: Actually, I got a chew on that one for a little bit. <laughs> I
1: oh, know goodness. it's so early in the morning, and the next thing you know, I've shoved a three-egg omelet Jeez. in your mouth in one bite. Purchased at the surrender Under of meaning. meaning. Wow! What in the heavens' name did was May referring to? Yeah. Well, I hope you go on to explain. <laughs> no i have no earthly idea (laughs) i threw the book down at that point we'll end there (laughs) forget you chump here's what he meant peter Berger, who came to faith late in his life the famous sociologist said the main role of religion he felt for eons has always been to give you a sense of meaning to make sense of the entirety of life And so, to make sense of, uh, you know, why do we have a body? Why are we drawn to sex? Uh, Why do we eat? Uh, Why do we work? Um, Why do we wear clothing? Uh, Why do we uh, like clothing? uh, What about uh, architecture, the environment, uh, science, uh, technology? Um, I'm just getting going, Pat. There's about... We could could spend several hours just going through a list of all the things and everything that the faith for 18 centuries gave meaning to this is why this is why this being the summertime this is why we cover these things these parts of our body at the beach this is why we like sweet things. This is why. And May's point is this. The American version of evangelicalism enjoyed popularity and helping people, but they purchased it at the surrender of meaning. In other words, we could only explain why you're lost and how you get saved. That's an overstatement, not only. But we mainly could explain three hours of Jesus' life, the cross, most important. Couldn't explain anymore how that was viewed for 18 centuries as our betrothal to Christ. It just became merely and only rather payment for sin, and then we could explain what you do, Pat, when you get off work, because you got to get a ministry going. So, Mike,
0: the critique here could be: uh, sure, that's played out in America poorly. Even if I buy into what you're saying there, right? If, if mm-hmm. I'm if I'm going along, I see how it played out in America poorly, but then I would expect it to look different in other parts of the world where that didn't play out the same. And one could definitely argue, well, it's not much different in other places. They're just as secular. They're, you know, all of the above. So what's your, what's your take on that?
1: Well, that's a really good point. And, uh, we were the best at exporting our brand oh. because of a uh, laser focus on fervency. We, we were better than any other tradition at uh, ginning up. Um, well, not yeah. I'd say probably better. Although you have to, you know, for example, um, there's been a longer and more deeply developed mission work in China from the from uh, the Catholic faith than from Protestant. Um, and, um, but. But where where we have uh, we have rode American technology, which has been superior to any other nation, probably in the history of the world, of technologies, and that's where we've been. American evangelicalism has been brilliant. That's a, you know, a, one, that's one quick thing. example would be the Four Laws. There, there really wasn't a Four Laws before, and that that tract is probably you know, it's it might very well be shown, it it saw more people come to faith than any other tract. It was used uh, as an instrument. And uh, so I came to faith. But, um, you know, that's why uh, Theodore Roszak, the famous historian, said, Christianity in America is privately engaging, but publicly irrelevant. That's what he meant by surrender of meaning, is that so we had a running joke in when I was with uh, Crew, and I love Crew. That's this is not a critique of Crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, but we we but you know it's telling when the when I was back in the '70s and '80s when I was on Crew staff, we had a running joke, and it was satire, but actually like Chesterton said, satire stings because it's telling you something. And our joke was this. Someone might say, "Listen, I'm uh, I'm out of shape and I'm fat and I need to lose weight and get in shape." Pray to receive Jesus. Uh, listen, <laughs> I'm really having trouble working. Pray to receive Jesus. Uh, you get the joke. Yeah. And uh, we had you know one size fits all. Now, is that is pray to receive Jesus fundamentally true? Of course. Is it absolutely essential? Of course. Is it the whole story? No. Is the cross is payment for sin the whole story? No. Is discipleship as we were trained uh, is the great commission uh, to train to train people to be evangelists to share their faith to blah blah blah? No. This is why Lewis, I mean, Dallas Willard, in his worth reading book, The Divine Conspiracy, says, the Western segment, the American segment of Christianity lives in a bubble of historical illusion regarding discipleship and the gospel.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think of my own... My own definition. Well, actually, this is this is a really interesting conversation that I think sheds light on it. So, I was having lunch with an Anglican pastor, and we were talking about the liturgical expressions of that faith versus my upbringing, which is more non-denominational. And I asked him, "Well, how do you how do you help newer people coming into the service? Like even me as." as a as a christian for many years i sit in the service and i'm like it's uncomfortable for me trying to get used to the rhythms and liturgies and i just i haven't been exposed so when it comes to a, a total non-believer coming into your church service like how do you how do you hold intention a, a, a richer uh liturgical experience with new believers the the whole evangelical uh, uh reaching out evangelizing to people and mm-hmm. What'd he say? He he looked at me inquisitively and he was just like, that's not what Sunday's for. <laughs> and my brain just kind of shattered at the moment. I was like, oh my oh my gosh. So I guess you guys don't even, you don't even consider that a problem because that's not what Sunday's for. He was, he said, Sundays are for discipleship. They're not for evangelism. Evangelism is Monday through Saturday. You know, the, the Sunday is for discipleship for the congregation. And I, I mean, it, it just, it, it was so simple. It made total sense. But I had never, I had never thought that way because growing up, Sunday was always you always brought your friends to church. You always tried mm-hmm. to bring your coworkers to church. That was the goal: to get people into church, and and just to I mean, this is another Protestant tradition that completely thinks differently about this. Yeah. My, my brain shattered. I was it was just it was wild. It was wild. But I
1: think it's whose brain it, are you using right now?
0: <laughs> clearly. I mean, it was just it was really representative of what you're talking about, of a very very different understanding of of the faith. And and I'm sure some hearing this would be like, well, then what's the point? You know, how how can you how can you go yes. about sharing the faith? But but yeah, I, I yeah. mean, sharing the gospel was such a critical piece of discipleship for yeah. me growing up. And um and like you said that that's that's not bad that's not what you're saying it's just not the full story it's not the full picture.
1: Yeah, yeah, Papa my that's so good. You got my brain spun up, and you know my, I feel bad about your brain, by the way. But uh, <laughs> I put it back together. A lot of super. Oh, cool. okay. Gosh, so you disprove Humpty Dumpty? Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. I, so years ago, I can't remember who said it, but he says the methods we use. To win people to faith while they make it extraordinarily easy, easier to come to faith, make it almost impossible to disciple them to maturity. You just, you come into a gospel that doesn't hardly explain anything other than, this is what May says in his book, sin, sanctification, sin salvation and sanctification over and over, sin, salvation, sanctification, sin, salvation, sanctification, sin, salvation, sanctification. Now he will point out that, again, northern abolitionists and southern evangelicals did touch on slavery too, but by focusing on sin, salvation, and sanctification, sin, salvation, sanctification, the problem with excessive righteousness being ruinous, as the writer of Ecclesiastes said, is you end up with you, your, your darn clear on the speck in your opponent's eye, and you don't see the log in your own. And so for the case leading up to the Civil War, the American version of evangelicalism, northern abolitionists were darn well certain about the the slavery and racism in the South as they sat in their segregated churches in the North. Southern evangelicals were rootin' to and sure about the bigotry of northern abolitionists while they sat in their segregated churches in the south. So they did touch on slavery, but it's primarily a, it's a it is a cycle of sin, salvation, scientification, sin, salvation, scientification, sin, salvation, and and those. It's just so difficult to talk to so many of my friends is because that is essential and important but it is such a narrow frame, it's so truncated, the gospel, that the the 1,000 things you're going to touch upon today in your life, you don't know how the gospel gives meaning to them. And so, yes, when everything is focused down to <clears throat> sin, salvation, sanctification, then you're saying you're saying, and furthermore, um, because you don't know how the rest of this has meaning, you're primarily reduced down to bring your friends to church. And that's why yep. Dallas Willard did say. The mission of the church really does boil down to the ABCs. And the first A is attendance. That's the biggest thing you hear reported. You know, we have 500 in our, so we had this, we have this. They're telling you that's our mission. And so I can understand on this side of the divide, you're going, um, you know, chants and incense, whatever <laughs> it's going to blow my friends' minds. Can't have that. Pat, here's an interesting thing. On this side of the divide, what is the fastest growing percentage of the of the U.S. population? What are they called? Religious nuns. N O N D S. Religious. That's right. And by definition, a religious nun is
0: someone who checks the nun box on the. Uh, I forget the poll, but um, the, of the, what their religion is.
1: That's right. They're not atheists, agnostic, Catholic, Buddhist, Protestant, Anglican, blah 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 blah. So they are what what they they self define as I am spiritual but not religious. Why would they say that? What are they reacting to in in the in American Christianity? Religion. It's religious but not spiritual. Yeah, that's that's the key is they're saying i'm spiritual but not religious i look at american christianity and it's religious but it's not spiritual then we compound our problem I spoke to our, some pastors about this not too long ago when they say hey we just want to assure you if here today you don't know christ we're not into religion we're into a relationship with christ to which i said to one after the service you might want to be careful there because you're going to meet the writer James one day who wrote about the goodness of religion. It's from the Latin to rebind, to return us back to what we ought to be. So here we are. We're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Now, I understand but he said. Well, but, but um, religiosity... And bad religion. Okay, I get it. That's that's fine. But see, because we are known for our fervency rather than our education, we don't nuance very well. We don't do we don't do nuance very well. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's all about relationships. That's a, that's a famous phrase in a very popular ministry in evangelicalism. It's all about relationships. It's a hundred percent about relationships. Really? I don't think so. But, if you're going for passion, because passion is a narrow focus, just for listeners, it's mentioned positively one time in the Bible, and it is a picture of sexual climax. Sexual climax narrows the focus, and it is ecstatic. And we're all for it. But you can't live that way. And so, in our, in our living on this side of the divide, we're all about fervency, but fervency narrows the focus down to uh, cross of salvation, you're a sinner, and we're going to, every week, you're going to learn about sanctification. All necessary, but not. We surrendered meaning. And so you have this burgeoning population that says, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Why are they saying they're spiritual, by the way? If you understand the gospel on the other side of the divide, why would they say they're spiritual?
0: I mean, the the other side speaks a little bit more to enchantment, but I don't know if that's what you're getting at.
1: Well, it also speaks to the creator God. God is spirit. So what are you being his creation? Hmm spiritual you're fundamentally spiritual the other day i was talking to one of my friends now he hasn't been in the faith very long but it's a faith on this side of the divide and frankly he's saying it's kind of blowing my mind i listen to these blog blogs he was saying because he was saying well you know on this work i'm doing in schools i want to bring in the spiritual side and i said to my friend i'll leave his name out i said uh that's a that's a pie chart view mm-hmm. of a human being there's not a spiritual side and we just walked through i took him up to the great divide, showed him. It only took a minute or two, and he's like, wow. He says, I've never even thought about this before. So everything is spiritual? I said, yes, everything is spiritual. So I don't have to bring in the spiritual side? So yes, it's already there. Jeez, Mike. He goes, why doesn't anybody teach this? (laughs) It's because, again, if you lived in Loveland, Colorado all your life around the plains, and you saw the Rockies, and you knew the Pacific was right over there, On the other side, you go, oh, so I just go up right here in Longspeak and look west. I'll see the Pacific. And so I just think day to day, you go to church. You're part of an American version of evangelicalism. You you look up at this up in the mountains. You think, so if I went up there and I looked over, I'd see Acts 28. And we're Acts 29. You're not. It's not that you're bad. It's just you don't see what you don't see. And this this version is flaming out just like the didactic enlightenment did 100 years ago. Faith movements typically lag in these things. And the biggest evidence is Gen Z, they're calculating it might be 80% religious nuns. Millennials, 40 to 50%. I mean, this is a coming tsunami of people who are saying, I'm not going to hear your apologist, your evangelist, I'm not coming to your church because it's religious, but not spiritual. I am spiritual, but not religious. And it's all because we live on this side of the great divide that Lewis discussed in 1954.